So uh, if we think about this psalm in the context of the Psalms of Ascents again, and then we uh, see, I think, in uh, these last three of the Psalms of Ascents, 132, 133, and 134, the people of God gathered actually for worship. In 132, we have the call to worship. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. And God coming to be with his people there. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. And God then speaking his promises to his people in the latter part of that psalm. I will, uh, here I will dwell, for I have desired it. In Psalm 133, then, we see, uh, if you will, David, as it were, uh, in the company of God's people there in the place of worship and looking around him and saying, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And in Psalm 134, then, the calling again for the saints in that company to bless the Lord. Behold, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, and the Lord blessing them as well. The Lord who made heaven and earth bless you from Zion. Now, the meaning of this Psalm 133 is very obvious, I think. Uh, It uh, doesn't need uh, deep thinking to understand the, the main idea that David is getting at here. But there are Uh, nevertheless some questions about the psalm that are not quite as easy. Why does David compare this uh, unity of the brethren to precious oil upon the head? What makes that a particularly appropriate uh, metaphor for uh, brethren dwelling in unity? And the same may be said of the second comparison he makes, that it's like the dew of Hermon. What makes that uh, brotherly unity uh, like the dew of Hermon. So we're going to have to spend some time, I think, talking about those similes here in uh, our discussion of the psalm. But we're going to uh, consider the psalm under the theme, the pleasantness of brotherly union. And we're going to consider first the uh, description of that union in verse 1, then the comparisons to that of that union to these other things in verses 2 and 3, And finally, the explanation for that union that we get in verse, the end of verse 3 there, the Lord commanded the blessing. Now, the first thing we ought to notice about verse 1, then, is that the the psalm makes a distinction between the brothers and their unity. He's talking about that brotherhood, but it's implicitly acknowledged that in that brotherhood it's possible that there be a lack of this unity. And so he's celebrating or he's talking about the goodness of that brotherhood when unity exists there. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And if you think about David's life, you can see that David experienced both things, both the disunity of brothers and the unity of brothers. When he was uh, uh, fleeing and hiding from uh, King Saul, and then David was not only 
separated from Saul at enmity with Saul and Saul's followers. But David was also cut off from the fellowship of other believers. He couldn't go to the places of worship where the people of God gathered because Saul was on the lookout for him and would find him there and would surely kill him. So he was cut off from that uh, unity. But then there are other times when, in his life when we read about this unity. We have an example of it in First Chronicles 12. First Chronicles 12, verses 38 to 40. This is after the house of Saul is no longer exists or no longer exists in competition with David anyway. And the Israelites have agreed to make David king. This is at Hebron after David has reigned seven years. And we read in those verses, all these men of war who could keep ranks came to Hebron with a loyal heart to make David king over all Israel. And all the rest of Israel were of one mind, notice that, were of one mind to make David king. And they were there with David three days, eating and drinking, for their brethren had prepared for them. Here's a a celebration of that unity. They're eating and drinking together. Moreover, those who were near to them, from as far away as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali, were bringing food on donkeys and camels on mules and oxen, provisions of flour and cakes of figs and cakes of raisins, wine and oil and oxen, and sheep abundantly, for there was joy in Israel, joy uh, in the unity of the people now under their new king, King David. In fact, there are some commentators who Uh, say that this psalm was written for that particular occasion, that David was celebrating this occasion of the unity, the newfound unity of the people of God as they made him king. There are others who say that it probably belongs to the time of the ark's return to the city of Jerusalem. That's another occasion on which we read about the great celebrations, the great joy of all Israel, as the worship of God, the proper worship of God was restored in the nation. But it's equally possible in my mind that David could have written this psalm while he was in the wilderness, fleeing from Saul. And that this psalm could be understood then as a psalm of longing, as David considers the fact that the people of God are gathered together and he's cut off from that um, unity of the people of God, he says to himself, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. I don't think we can identify a particular occasion for the psalm. Now, the word unity that we have here in verse 1 does not actually appear in the Hebrew A more precise translation would probably be, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren also to dwell together. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren also to dwell together. And that's what we want to talk about, that phrase, dwell together. That's where we're going to spend the rest of this first point. What does it mean that they dwell together? Well, of course, the foundation of this whole idea is the brotherhood 
And that brotherhood then that exists among the people of God. As the people of God are in New Testament language the body of the Lord Jesus Christ of which he himself is the head. It's a a brotherhood that is uh, a unity of the people of God in diversity so that there are different members of the body, just as we have hands and feet and eyes and all these different members of the body, so the body of Christ has all kinds of different members, but they all are united together to form one organism, one body. And no member of the body can say of the body, I don't have any need of the body. And the body cannot say to any particular member, We have no need of you. There's this unity that exists in the body of Christ, this unity of mutual dependence between the members and in the head, Jesus Christ. Of course, that's not the figure of speech that we have here. The figure of speech we have is that of a family for brothers to dwell together in union. Another very common figure throughout the scriptures and also in the New Testament. And we are brothers because of, first of all, our adoption by God, who by our adoption becomes our father, brings us into his house, makes us a part of his family, bestows upon us his name, and gives to us the promise of his inheritance. And we are brothers also because of our common birth, our regeneration, by which God uh, gives to us uh, the life that belongs to him and that he gives also to our Lord Jesus Christ and the uh, likeness that belongs to him and that is seen in our Lord Jesus Christ who is the image of the invisible God. So both by adoption and regeneration, we belong to this, we all belong to the same same family and share this unity, this fundamental unity that is not always perfectly expressed, to say the least, in the church while it exists on earth. But if you examine that word, that the idea of that dwelling together throughout the Old Testament, there are a number of things that belong to it, I think. And one of the things that very clearly belongs to this brotherly unity is physical proximity. We should not forget that as we uh, uh, consider this unity. There's physical proximity of the people of God. Micah talks about it in chapter 2, verse 12 of his his prophecy, God says there, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of their pasture. So God says he's going to assemble his people together. He will bring them into the same fold. There is physical proximity. We all dwell, as it were, in the same place. So that's one thing that belongs to this unity. But there's a unity also of, if I may use that 
language, a unity of vision. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5. Isaiah 40, verse 5. Says this, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. All flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We all see the same Lord. We all behold the same great God and the glory of that Lord. There is a unity of vision then. There is, in addition, we may say, a unity of purpose. We come together to worship and to adore this great God whose glory we behold. There is a unity that is of love. 2 Samuel 12, verse 3, uh, gives us a, a kind of picture of this love in a completely different setting. 2 Samuel 12, verse 3, But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together. Notice the word together there. It grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. So there's this love that binds the uh, people of God together too. So you have a unity of vision, a unity of purpose, a unity of love. And finally, I think also a unity of knowledge. And and there, uh, since this, I think, is very often uh, disregarded today, I want to spend a little bit more time with that. Isaiah 41, verse 20. God is talking to Israel of their future and of the good he will give them. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will will not forsake them. I will open rivers and desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. And he goes on in that vein for a couple of verses. And then he says that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. There is a unity of knowledge. Psalm 55 talks about it as well. Psalm 55, verse 14. In that psalm we have these words, we took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. And of course there is 1 Corinthians 1 where Paul um, urges the Corinthians to be of one mind. They were divided because one was saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, another I'm of Apollos, another still, I'm of Cephas, and another I'm of Christ. And Paul says, no, no, don't, don't be um, like that. You, are, you must be of one mind together. And so there's a a unity of knowledge as well. And it's a a unity of the knowledge of the truth, of course. You can't gloss over that fact in the scriptures, that the scriptures uh, touch on this many times in many places, that there is a unity of the knowledge of and confession of the truth that God has revealed to us in Christ. He is the way, the truth, 
and the life. This unity, then, is, as I indicated already, not always perfect. In fact, there's often great disunity and trouble and strife in the church, in that brotherhood. Sometimes that uh, unity is broken by our, the injuries we do to each other, the evil things that we uh, do to one another, the evil words we speak, or the harmful things that we do to our brothers and sisters in Christ that breaks that unity. Sometimes that unity is broken by false teaching. And these things then get in the way of the goodness and the pleasantness of that unity of the brotherhood. And sometimes, of course, this psalm becomes very appropriate in the setting where that unity has been restored through forgiveness and repentance and so on. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. I want also to look at those two words that he uses to describe this. It's good and it's pleasant. The word good in Hebrew is as broad at least as the word good in uh, the English language and can mean a lot of different things. And so I want to touch on some of the different things it can mean. First of all, of course, it can mean morally good. We talk, for example, about a good man or a good woman and we mean by this uh, a man or a woman who is obedient to the commandments of God, who, who loves God and who loves his truth and who seeks to follow that truth, a man who loves his neighbor and who does good to his neighbor because of his love for his neighbor. His goodness shines in him, in his life, and becomes visible to us. It's morally good because it is pleasing to God, acceptable to him. It is what he commands. And this unity of brotherhood here in uh, Psalm 133 is good in part because God commands it and is pleased with it and finds it acceptable to him when we live in that unity. He's not pleased with the disunity of his uh, children. Romans 12 verse 16 talks about it. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Or Romans 15, verses 5 and 6. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That disunity in the brotherhood uh, interferes with the unity of purpose as well, the glorifying of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 13 is another place where uh, this it's clear that this is a commandment. Finally, brethren, farewell, become complete, be of good comfort, be of one mind, Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Or Philippians 1, verse 27. Philippians 1, verse 27. 
Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or, or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Or 2, verse 2, in the same book, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So again and again, God commands this unity among his people. It's good, therefore, in the sense that it's pleasing and acceptable to God, that it's in harmony with what he commands. But we may add to that, that this goodness of the and pleasantness of the brotherhood unity is also unmixed then, ultimately, ideally, with the corruption of our sins and with the corruption and disturbance of people who are of different character, who do not have the life of regeneration and they, who do not bear the image of God, or the people of God who themselves commit sin, and so on. The unity consists ultimately in that brotherly fellowship, that brotherly union, being free of all that corruption, and of all that those people who are not of the same character. It won't be perfect then until we get to heaven. There's another sense in which we can talk about goodness as well, and that is a goodness that means something is suited for its purpose. And Joseph uses the term good in that sense in Genesis chapter 50 when his brothers come to him and they're very worried that now that their father is dead, uh, Joseph is going to take vengeance on them for what they did to him. And Joseph said to his brothers at that time, God meant it for good. And of course, he doesn't mean to say to his brother that your behavior is excusable. He's not at all telling them that your behavior was morally acceptable to God. But what he's telling them is that in the wise counsel and providence of God, God made their behavior useful for certain purposes. The purpose of saving much people alive, as uh, Joseph puts it. And this unity of the brotherhood is also a good thing in that regard. Good in that it's useful for the purpose which God, for which God created it. You see this, of course, very clearly in 1 Corinthians 12. In verses 4 and following, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For the one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healings by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. And each of the members receives these gifts, to serve the good of the body. 
to be useful then in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ so that all the members may be knit together and grow together to a mature man in Christ Jesus, as Paul says in Ephesians 4. So the goodness of this unity is that it's good for the members and it's good for the purpose of serving God, the God who has created us and called us. That's another sense in which we may use the term goodness, and it's here in this psalm too. Behold how good it is for brothers to dwell together in unity, to be fulfilling the purpose which God has, for which God has gathered them. And finally, we may say that to this goodness belongs a delight. For a thing to be good means also to us that it's delightful. We use the word in that way when we talk about good food, for example. We mean it's pleasant to our taste. And that's here as well, of course. How delightful it is for brothers to dwell together in union. In fact, the word pleasant expresses that very well. Psalm 16, that's why we sang that a moment ago. David says that his joy, his delight, is in the saints who are the excellent of the earth. And he talks about the goodness of the inheritance that God has given to him, which is in part that fellowship of the saints. Matthew Henry, in his comment on this uh, psalm, says this, Behold how good we cannot conceive or express the goodness and pleasantness of it. Behold, it is a rare thing, and therefore admirable. Behold and wonder that there should be so much goodness and pleasantness among men, so much of heaven on this earth. Behold, it is an amiable thing which will attract our hearts. Behold, it is an exemplary thing which, where it is, is to be imitated by us with a holy emulation. So let's go on then to the comparisons by which uh, David illuminates this unity this dwelling together. First, it's like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. We may note in passing here that the word running down or descending is found three times in verses 2 and 3. It would be nice if the translation use the same translation each time. It is like the precious oil upon the head descending on the beard, descending on the edge of his garments, descending, it is like the dew of Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion. It is a uh, blessing that descends from above. Now, to get to the first comparison, oil, of course, had many uses for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. You find that it was used for burning in lamps. You find that it was used in food. You find that it was used for healing. We have one example of 
that healing in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 6, Isaiah 1 verse 6, from the sole of the foot even to the head there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, they have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment or with oil. It was used for cleansing and refreshing. This is what David talks about, for example, in Psalm 23, when he says, you anoint my head with oil. That's not his anointing to be the king of Israel that he refers to there. This is rather the practice of anointing the head with oil to refresh and to cleanse after a hot and dusty journey, for example. And you have a number of passages that talk about this. When Joab sent the old woman to David uh, uh, to persuade David to accept Absalom again, then he told that old woman, go in mourning and don't anoint yourself with oil. Don't be clean and and don't be refreshed and and, uh, clean looking when you come into his presence. Look like one who is in mourning. And Psalm 104 verse 15 talks about oil that makes the face Shine. So you get all these different ideas associated with oil, and maybe some of those oil, those ideas are in the background here. You find it's also used in offerings. You can look it up in the book of Exodus, for example, and oil was often included in the grain offerings that the people brought to the tabernacle. Commentators often emphasize in connection with this oil its fragrance or its Uh, ability to refresh, its use in refreshing. But though some of this may be in the background, what we have to focus on here is what the scriptures actually say. It's like the precious oil upon the head descending on the beard, the beard of Aaron descending on the edge of his garments. This is the anointing oil that he's talking about. The oil that was poured on Aaron when he was anointed to be the high priest of God's people. That oil was a very special composition. Exodus 30 describes its composition and forbids the people of Israel to make any oil like it. It was a very special oil. And of course the essence of that pouring of oil on the head of Aaron was that it was a sign of the gift of the Spirit. The Spirit came upon him through that anointing with oil. The Spirit came upon him to give him his particular place as high priest among the people of God. And I That's how we have to take it here. This is the anointing oil that descended on the head of Aaron. And what the scriptures are teaching us here is that the source of this brotherly unity, which is so good and pleasant, is the pouring out of the Spirit on the church, on the body of Christ, on that brotherly unity. He is the one who creates it, and he is the one who maintains it and who nourishes it and who develops it through all the days of our lives in the body of Christ. It's a a pouring out of the Spirit that creates this unity. He 
saying then that this unity, the goodness and the pleasantness of the unity is like that pouring out of the Spirit on the head of Aaron because the Spirit is poured also on that brotherly unity to make that brotherly unity a holy priesthood in the service of God. A priesthood that's united fundamentally by its holiness, by its consecration to God. But notice, too, that he says of this oil that, and I don't think you read this in the account of Aaron's anointing, for example, but the oil, when it's poured on the head, runs down onto Aaron's beard and then from his beard onto his garment and onto the edge of his garment, which probably, according to the commentators, means the collar of his garment. So this oil is not just a few drops that is poured on the head of Aaron, but it's a, a generous amount of oil that's running down into his beard and running down from his beard even onto the edge of his garment. The Spirit is given generously and abundantly. God gives His Spirit to His people, not in small uh, measure, but He opens His hand wide and pours out that Spirit in abundance upon them. This Spirit then brings gifts with Him. We've already referred to 1 Corinthians 12. And these gifts are part of that abundance that the Spirit brings an abundance of gifts that He gives. And in Psalm 45, we should not ignore that either. That anointing Spirit (coughs) is called the oil of gladness as it's applied to our Lord Jesus Christ. You love righteousness and hate wickedness, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. It's the oil of joy, then, that God gives. All of this is is encompassed in that, and, and the goodness and the pleasantness of this unity is because it is this rich outpouring of the Spirit that brings all these gifts and blessings to the church, and that brings joy with it, joy in that company of the saints and consecrates that unity then for the service of God as a priesthood in his house. But when there's reference to Aaron, I think we have to say, well, then there's reference to Christ too, of whom Aaron was a type. He is the one high priest upon whom God has poured his spirit without measure. And on whom and through whom in whom and through whom then we receive the abundance of the Spirit of God. That's what that joy is like, the outpouring of the Spirit, the oil of gladness on Aaron's head and on Christ's head as well. Then he also compares this brotherly unity or this the goodness and pleasantness of this brotherly unity to the dew of Hermon. Now the question is why Hermon? 
Hermon was a significant mountain. You read of it more than once in the Old Testament, but certainly not by any stretch of the imagination the most important mountain in Israel. And so uh, why talk about the dew of Hermon? Um, Robert Alter, who's a liberal commentator, by the way, um, says this about it. The Masoretic text reads on the mountains of Zion, which does not make much sense because Mount Hermon is geographically removed from the Judean mountains around Jerusalem, and dew certainly does not travel in this fashion. The translation, that is his translation, adopts a small emendation, rendering tzia, parched land, for tzion, or Zion. So he has, like Hermon's dew that comes down on the parched mountains, rather than like the dew of Hermon that comes down on Zion. I see no reason why we have to change the Hebrew here. There's no uh, difficulty even, I think, about the figure of speech, the metaphor or simile that uh, David uses here when he says it's like the dew of Hermon descending on Zion. Think of it this way, that Hermon is a high mountain, much higher than Zion, often snow-capped, in fact, whereas Zion would not have been. And as a, as a high mountain... Hermon would capture the Mount Hermon would capture a lot of the moisture that came uh, off the Mediterranean Sea, and would be a place then where the dews would be heavy, where the rain would fall in abundance, and a, a mountain then where rivers and streams would have their sources, and there would be lakes and so on. It would be a place of much water. And what the what David is saying here is simply that. When this brotherly unity exists in the city of Zion, it's as if that dew of Hermon is falling on Mount Zion. It's as if that smaller, lower, much drier place, Mount Zion, a place that's much drier than Hermon, is blessed with that dew of Hermon, that abundance of the dew of Hermon. And that dew, of course, brings refreshing and brings renewal of life. You see the the blessing of dew in many places in the Old Testament scriptures. Again, I don't want to refer to all of them, but let's look at a couple anyway. As Isaac is blessing Jacob before he sends him off to his uncle Laban, he says to Jacob this, Genesis 27, verse 28. Therefore, may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Or Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 2, where uh, Moses is blessing the tribe of Joseph. No, no, where Moses is talking, excuse me, about his teaching. Let my teaching drop as the rain my speech distill as the dew, as raindrops on the tender grass, herb, and as showers on the grass. Or chapter 33, verse 13, where he's blessing Joseph. Blessed of the Lord is his land with the precious things of heaven, with the dew and the deep lying beneath. 
And in that same chapter, when he's blessing Israel, then Israel shall dwell in safety, the fountain of Jacob alone, in the land of grain and new wine. His heavens shall also drop dew. So you get this picture of dew as a, as a sign of blessing, a sign of the uh, goodness of God to his people. It brings refreshment, it brings renewal of life. As the last verse then of the psalm says, For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Notice that the Lord commanded the blessing. The Lord proclaims blessing to his people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Or the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. Those kinds of blessings. But it's not just a proclamation of blessing, it's a commandment of blessing. The Lord commands his blessing there. He says, let this people be blessed. And his blessing comes to them. And it comes to them in such a rich and glorious way that Zion becomes the center of life and of blessing and of joy in the world. There in Zion he commands this blessing. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. For there in Zion the Lord commands the blessing, life forevermore. Too often we lose sight of the blessing of this unity and we let little things get in the way of it. Instead of permitting love to cover a multitude of sins, we take the sins of our brothers very seriously, the small sins of our brothers very seriously, and we make them causes of resentment and of of anger against our brother and of breaking of unity with our brother because we think he has injured us in some trifling way. That should not be the case. This unity of brothers is a thing that's blessed and joyful, good and pleasant. And we need to work at it, and we need to work at forgiving so that this unity may exist in the body of Christ. As long as we're here, there will be no possibility of unity without forgiveness. But there's another way, too, I think, in which we violate this unity, and that is by ignoring often the important things. We make the little things big and let them get in the way of the unity, and we ignore the big things and pretend that they don't have any effect on the unity. And so we see a brother committing sin, gross sin, and we say nothing. do nothing. We let sin creep into the body. Or our brother sins against us. Maybe in a very serious way that has to be dealt with. And we let malice and bitterness creep in 
to destroy that unity. Or we let false teaching come into that unity of the body of Christ and disrupt and trouble that unity. We pretend to ourselves that that unity can exist without truths. But when the scriptures talk about this unity, as we've seen very often, they say, be of one mind. Something then that needs to be worked at. Something that that needs our strongest efforts. So that we may, to whatever degree is possible, to the greatest extent possible, enjoy that unity here. And be able to say, yes, it's imperfect, but indeed, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. May God bless his word for us.